Hello, and welcome to the Dr. Jocker's Functional Nutrition Podcast, the show designed to give you science-based solutions to improve your health and life. I'm Dr. David Jockers, doctor of natural medicine and creator of drjockers.com, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm here to tell you that your body was created to heal itself, and on this show, we focus on strategies you can apply today to heal and function at your best. Thanks for spending time with me, and let's go into the show. This podcast is sponsored by my friends over at ShopC60.com. If you haven't heard of Carbon 60 or otherwise called C60 before, it is a powerful Nobel Prize winning antioxidant that helps to optimize mitochondrial function, fights inflammation, and neutralizes toxic free radicals. I'm a huge fan of using C60 in conjunction with a healthy lifestyle to support your immune system, help your body detox, and increase energy and mental clarity. If you are over the age of 40 and you'd like to kick fatigue and brain fog to the curb this year, visit shopc60.com and use the coupon code JOCKERS for 15% off your first order and start taking back control over your health today. The products I use, I use their C60 in organic MCT coconut oil. They have it in various different flavors. They also have sugar-free gummies that are made with allulose and monk fruit. They also have carbon 60 and organic avocado and extra virgin olive oil. When it's combined with these fats, it absorbs more effectively. And carbon 60 is great as a natural energizing tool because it really helps your mitochondria optimize your energy production. Now, if you take it late at night, for some individuals, it may seem a little bit stimulating. So that's why we recommend taking it earlier in the day, and it will give you that great energy, that great great mental clarity that you want all day long. It will help reduce the effects of oxidative stress and aging and really help you thrive. So again, guys, go to shopc60.com, use the coupon code JOCKERS to save 15% off your first order and start taking back control of your health today. Well, welcome back to the podcast. Today, we are talking about natural solutions to Hashimoto's thyroiditis and hyperthyroid or Graves disease. A lot of you guys have asked for a podcast like this, and I'm bringing on a guest expert, Dr. Eric Osansky. He is the best-selling author of the book, Natural Treatment Solutions for Hyperthyroidism and Graves Disease which is now in its third edition. And he also wrote a second book called Hashimoto's Triggers. And he's also the host of Save My Thyroid podcast. So definitely check out his podcast. I've been interviewed on there before. And his website is naturalendocrinesolutions.com. And he is really a wealth of knowledge. I really have enjoyed his book. I read his book, uh, Natural Treatment Solutions for Hyperthyroidism and Graves' Disease. It's really the best book out there on hyperthyroidism, on Graves' Disease. So if you know anybody that's dealing with that, that is a fantastic resource. Got a great website, Natural Endocrine Solutions. And he, he also has a free 52-page guide, The Six Steps to Reverse Graves' Disease and Hashimoto's Naturally at his website, naturalendocrinesolutions.com. And so in this podcast, we're going to talk all about signs and symptoms of hyperthyroidism, graves, of Hashimoto's, root cause factors. We're going to talk about 
conventional treatment options when they're necessary, when they may not be, and natural strategies, nutrition, lifestyle, herbs, nutrients that uh, are really key for helping the body to heal and recover and function at its best. So you guys are in for a treat here. Again, if you know anybody with Graves' disease or with Hashimoto's, great podcasts to send over to them. If you've not left us a five-star review, please do that. If you've not subscribed to our podcast, please do that. So that way you never miss one of these important interviews or trainings that I do. Thanks so much for doing that. Thank you guys for being a part of our community. Let's go into the show. Well, Dr. Eric Osansky, great to connect with you. You know, I was saying earlier in my introduction how much I've enjoyed your book on hyperthyroidism, really probably the best book out there, I would imagine, most thorough book out there on that topic. And so I really appreciate you taking the time and going through all the depth there. And you're on your third edition now, so you've really updated that. And my first question is really, how'd you get into the thyroid health space? Yeah, so uh, great question, Dr. Jockers. Uh, I had my, like a lot of practitioners who do what they do, I had my own health journey. And so I developed hyperthyroidism. And at that time, I wasn't too familiar with hyperthyroidism. I was just, uh, I'm a chiropractor and was just practicing just like a regular chiropractor, you know, adjusting patients. And, you know, it was a bit of a shock when I developed hyperthyroidism and then eventually saw an endocrinologist and was diagnosed with Graves' disease. And even though I didn't have a lot of experience as part of my continuing education credits for chiropractic, I always would take nutrition courses. And so some of those courses were actually functional endocrinology courses. And so I knew there were natural solutions out there for you know both hyperthyroidism and Hashimoto's. And so when I was diagnosed, I knew I was gonna at least attempt to take a natural approach. I didn't know if they would be effective or not. But yeah, long story short, I, you know, I, I went ahead, I did things from a dietary standpoint, stress management, and we could talk about some of these and, you know, supplements and just avoided the medication, which is very common with hyperthyroidism, uh, antithyroid medication a lot of people take, but I was able to uh, use herbs such as bugleweed and motherwort to manage the symptoms. And then, uh, yeah, and then just realizing that there are a lot of people out there with thyroid conditions, um, especially uh, I mean, uh, more so Hashimoto's, but the problem is there's not a lot of practitioners who focus on hyperthyroidism. And that's why I decided to write the first edition of my book and then recently uh, released the third edition uh, just to update that. But yeah, essentially that's my story. Just um, turned my own success story into helping many others with hyperthyroidism as well as Hashimoto's. Yeah, I know whenever I put out thyroid information, people are always like, what about hyperthyroidism? I, I get that kind of question all the time because again, there's not a whole lot of content out there on that topic because it's a lot less frequent, a lot less common than Hashimoto's or than hypothyroidism, too low thyroid hormone. And so let's talk about some of the symptoms you were experiencing when you got your diagnosis and then really any other, any additional symptoms that can clue somebody in that they may be dealing with hyperthyroidism. Yeah. So the first, I mean, some of the first symptoms I experienced was weight loss and increased appetite, but I should also say prior to my diagnosis, I was, was dieting and detoxifying and which, which is good, but I was going a little bit too extreme. Uh, and, you know, but those are common problems because you have an increased metabolism with hyperthyroidism and what's the weight loss. I lost 
42 pounds, which uh, is a lot for anyone and, and no exception in my situation, increased resting heart rate. Uh, the the way I really knew that something was up is I was walking around in a Sam's Club one day. It took my blood pressure at one of those automated blood pressure machines. And my blood pressure was fine, but my resting heart rate was 90. And then uh, I measured the next few days, found out it was anywhere between like 90 and 110. So I had heart rate, uh, uh, increased resting heart rate. Uh, then I developed heart palpitations. Uh, I mean, just uh, loose stools, another common symptom and something I experienced as well. Uh, I had some tremors. So those were probably like the the main symptoms. And I mean, some other symptoms that others experience, anxiety is pretty common. Some people insomnia. And there's also uh, hair loss. Actually, hair loss is, is very common as well with both hyper and hypo. And then there's what's called thyroid eye disease, which is more specific for Graves disease. So Graves, just like Hashimoto's, those are autoimmune thyroid conditions. And so um, thyroid eye disease is also an immune system condition where the immune system attacks the tissues of the eyes and can result in bulging of the eyes, can result in swelling, sometimes double vision. And so those are some of the more common symptoms associated with hyperthyroidism. Yeah, now let's talk about hypothyroidism or what really the most common, you know, for this, we really want to focus on Hashimoto's, but in general, um, and Hashimoto's is number one, it's the number one cause for hypothyroidism. And so what are the the symptoms there for hypothyroidism? How does that differ from hyper? Yeah. So again, what hypothyroidism typically have that decreased metabolism. So you'll notice symptoms such as increased weight gain, uh, what weight gain and then coldness is very common. Brain fog is common. I mentioned with hyperthyroidism, you get a lot of times loose stools. With hypothyroidism, a lot of times you get constipation. Uh, I mean, you also could get hair loss. Um, skin issues actually come with both um, hyperthyroidism and Hashimoto's, but like Hashimoto's, a lot of times you get dry skin. Could also happen with hyperthyroidism, but also a lot of people with graves will get rashes. Um, but yeah, the again, the weight gain, the brain fog, obviously low fatigue, like again, you get low metabolism. So fatigue, quite common with hypothyroidism. And so, yeah, those are, I mean, there's de definitely other symptoms people could experience like digestive symptoms besides constipation and blood sugar imbalances. But yeah, those are some of the classic hypothyroid symptoms that I just mentioned. Yeah. Now let's, let's pivot to labs. So if somebody's having these symptoms, they go in, they get some labs run. What specific labs help determine hypo, hyperthyroidism and the differences there? Yeah. So what most medical doctors do is they test what's called TSH, which is thyroid stimulating hormone, which is actually a pituitary hormone. And it signals the thyroid gland to either produce more thyroid hormone in the case of hypothyroidism or in the case of hyperthyroidism, like just signals to slow things down and not to produce thyroid hormone. The problem is a lot of medical doctors, that's where they stop. They just do the TSH. And especially if it's within the lab range, it might be, a, it might not be within the optimal range, but if it's within the lab range, a lot of times that's all they'll look at. And so if like TSH is elevated, they might say the person has hypothyroidism. And then if it's depressed, then that's indicative of hyperthyroidism. But you really want to look at the thyroid hormones. So there's T4 and T3. The thyroid gland mostly produces T4, produces some T3, 
but T4 converts into T3, and T3 is the active form of thyroid hormone. It's what actually binds to the receptors. And so again, if someone has hyperthyroidism, what you'll see is typically elevated T4 and T3 levels, that depressed TSH that I just mentioned. And then with hypothyroidism, you'll see the opposite, elevated TSH. And thyroid hormones, they may be below the range, but a lot of times they're subclinical where they might be within the lab range, but on the lower side. And then um, did you want me to discuss the antibodies too, the difference in the antibodies with Graves and Hodgkin? Yeah, let's, let, let's go into that. And so, you know, just to kind of summarize what you're saying, like TSH is basically the brain telling the thyroid produce hormone. So in hypothyroidism, TSH is high, meaning the brain's really screaming at the, the thyroid, produce more hormone, and yet the hormone levels are low because it's not able to because there's destruction and damage to the thyroid tissue. And then with hyperthyroidism, the brain's quieted, right? It's not telling, basically, there's almost no TSH out. So it's not saying anything to the thyroid, but the thyroid just keeps spewing out hormone because the antibodies, the immune system is attacking the thyroid gland and it's kind of the opposite reaction. Now the thyroid gland's reacting in a way that lots of thyroid hormones being produced. And so, yeah, let's talk about those antibodies. These are what's actually the immune components that are actually um, attacking different parts of, of the thyroid and the thyroid hormone. Yeah. So with Graves' disease, you have what's called thyroid-stimulating immunoglobulins, which is a type of TSH receptor antibody, and they bind, they attack, bind to- That one's the actually TSH. attacking the brain, TSH. Correct. The, That's the, yeah. the, the, the TSH receptors. So yeah. Yeah. The receptors. Um, yep. Okay. The yep. receptors on the thyroid gland. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They, yep. they attach the TSH receptors to the thyroid. And then, yeah. And that's what's causing the increased production of thyroid hormone. And then there's probably the most, or not probably, the most common antibody is TPO or thyroid peroxidase antibodies, which are more closely associated with Hashimoto's although a lot of people with Graves have them as well. When, when I dealt with Graves, I did not test positive for TPO antibodies, but depending on the source, the literature will say anywhere between 60 and 80% of people with Graves will have positive TPO antibodies, whereas with Hashimoto's about 90%. And so those are TPO thyroid peroxidase is actually an enzyme that's important in the manufacture of thyroid hormones. So if you have the immune system attacking that process, then that, yeah, will lead to reduced thyroid hormones. And then you have anti-thyroglobulin antibodies. So thyroglobulin is a protein. It's actually part of the thyroid gland. So when you have those antibodies, that means that the immune system is attacking and damaging the thyroglobulin. And that also is important in thyroid hormone production. So yeah, the thyroglobulin and TPO antibodies are more damaging, whereas those TSI more stimulating, hence the name thyroid stimulating immunoglobulins. Now, are most conventional doctors testing those antibodies? And do you have to have elevation in the antibodies to be diagnosed with Hashimoto's or, or Graves' disease? Yeah. So to answer your first question, it depends. I mean, initially they usually won't. They'll just start out with a thyroid panel, which I guess makes sense. They'll look, mm -hmm. I mean, the antibodies form before the thyroid panel. So really, yeah. you know, ideally you should be looking at the whole picture, but usually what they'll do is they'll find the TSH out of range, maybe part of a physical, but, but it depends uh, what 
what graves usually would ha- like what what happened with me i went to a primary care doctor and they did uh i think they did just tsh and free t4 so i was hyperthyroid and then you know referred me to an endocrinologist and endocrinologist tested the antibodies and you know and so that's usually what happens with graves what hypothyroidism hashimotos a lot of times it kind of goes undetected for years so someone might just randomly get the TSH tested again as part of a physical, they'll see it elevated. And then it depends. Sometimes they won't test the antibodies. They might just put someone on thyroid hormone replacement because quite frankly, in the medical world, it doesn't make a difference. If someone has elevated antibodies that's in the presence of an elevated TSH, that's probably what they're going to do anyway. So I would say it depends. Maybe maybe roughly like 40, 50% will test for um, the antibodies as far as Hashimoto's. But again, with Graves, it's more likely because once they once mm. they go to the medical doctor to diagnose with hyperthyroidism, a good chance they'll test for antibodies. Again, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they're not familiar with Graves, and I've seen them where they tested the Hashimoto's antibodies in someone with Graves. And, uh, and again, sometimes they are positive, but you really want to look at the TSI. And then as far, what, what was, uh, you had, um, Oh, your next question was if they're, well, I guess if they're negative, like if you have negative antibodies, does that rule out Graves and Hashimoto's? Not necessarily. Uh, You could have Hashimoto's and Graves with negative antibodies. I mean, it definitely is more common. Like most people with Hashimoto's will have either the elevated TPO and or thyroglobulin antibodies. And most people with Graves will have those elevated TSI. Now with Graves, there are a few different ways you could detect it. Let's say if you have like false negative, you know, TSI, like if someone's taking steroids or something suppressing the immune system and causing, or there's another cause causing a false negative antibodies. Um, they, there is something called the radioact- radioactive iodine uptake test, which uh, doctors will give like a small amount of radioactive iodine. Uh, there's also radioactive iodine treatment. So again, this is not confused an actual treatment that obliterates the thyroid gland, but it's looking at the uptake of the radioactive iodine by the thyroid gland. And when it's elevated, that could indicate that someone has Graves' disease. Um, not my favorite test because I, I don't want anybody to take that if they don't need to. So if the antibodies are positive, I don't think that test is necessary. Um, but then there's also thyroid eye disease I mentioned. So if someone, let's say, has negative antibodies and they're having not necessarily dryness because that's quite common, but if they are having some bulging or eye pressure or double vision, uh, then maybe in that case, they might want to go to an ophthalmologist, get that diagnosis. And if they are diagnosed with, uh, with hyperthyroidism and thyroid eye disease, but the antibodies are negative. They most likely have Graves. Uh, what Hashimoto is a little bit more tricky. I mean, sometimes you could tell on an ultrasound, but it's not, I mean, yeah, again, it's, it is more challenging if someone with Hashimoto's has false negative antibodies, mm-hmm. but with Graves, there are other mechanisms to, to find out. Yeah. And Graves' disease is treated more aggressively, typically, and taken more seriously in in conventional medicine, and and rightfully so, because it could be life-threatening, whereas Hashimoto's is not considered life-threatening. Obviously, it's going to derail and um, degenerate somebody's quality of life over time. But uh, like you mentioned, that pretty much with Hashimoto's, their treatment is thyroid medication, whereas with hyperthyroidism, they have to decide on medication, surgery, radioactive, uh, you know, treatments, different things like that. 
And so can you go into more detail with that? Sure. So yeah, you're absolutely right. With hyperthyroidism, it's not not to dismiss hypothyroidism. Someone has low thyroid hormones. Obviously, you want to address that. But yeah, it could be an urgent situation when someone has an elevated resting heart rate. And you know, I mentioned my range of heart rate, but some people have a resting heart rate of like 140, 150, 160 beats per minute. Mm. And so the endocrinologist will usually give the person one of three options: the antithyroid medication radioactive iodine or thyroid surgery. And, you know, I think antithyroid medication is a good first option. And again, there are natural options like the herbs. Um, so those are options too. But for just talk about the medical treatments and medical options, again, compared to radioactive iodine and thyroid surgery, I would rather someone get antithyroid medication and save their thyroid. The problem with antithyroid medication, such as methimazole, is that side effects are common. So a lot of people will have elevated liver enzymes. Sometimes it'll depress the white blood cell count. Sometimes people will develop rashes and just have other reactions. And when that happens, typically the endocrinologist will resort to these other treatment methods, say, okay, well, if you're not tolerating the antithyroid medication and they're not familiar with the herbs, and, and there are other options, like if you're probably familiar with low-dose naltrexone, LDN, that could modulate the immune system, and you know, what cholestyramine, which is not really known for hyperthyroidism, it has other applications. But, yeah. yeah, exactly, it binds to mycotoxins. Right. But it also, if you look at the literature, it binds to thyroid hormone. And I've had a few patients who are unable to tolerate the antithyroid medication, but took the cholestyramine. You know, it's not the most convenient because you have to take it away from everything. But if you're choosing between, again, that or radioactive iodine thyroid surgery, but yeah, you know, if um, from a medical standpoint, if they can't take the antithyroid medication, they're usually going to recommend either obliterating the thyroid gland through radioactive iodine or getting thyroid surgery, which are, I'm not saying there's, there's definitely a time and place for thyroid surgery, but we need to keep in mind, especially with Graves, it's an immune system condition. So if you get those treatments, it's doing absolutely nothing for the autoimmune components and you're at greater risk of developing other autoimmune conditions. So yeah, I, I definitely uh, definitely recommend other alternatives for people who don't want to take the antithyroid medication or who are willing to take it but are unable to tolerate it. Yeah, and I think that's important uh, thing that you just said there was that with Graves' disease and really with Hashimoto's as well, it's not actually a thyroid problem. The thyroid is in a sense just it's it's the immune system is the bully the thyroid is is really the victim and so if we just take out the thyroid the bully's still there um you know the immune system's still dysfunctional and uh, so we haven't really addressed the cause now in a life-threatening situation you gotta do what you gotta do but in general again we're not getting to the root cause with the issue and we're going to go through some of the root causes before we do that a lot of people have thyroid nodules out there really really common Thyroid nodules, there's a, obviously an association with, with autoimmunity, but what are some of the other factors involved with per, perhaps thyroid nodules too? Yeah, so just like anything, there's causes, like what causes mm -hmm. thyroid nodules? And there's a few different factors that could lead to development of thyroid nodules. So one, problems with estrogen metabolism. So mm -hmm. just the way your body metabolizes estrogen. And, and again, someone who's like- in Nodules are basically like scar tissue. In the thyroid, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, just kind of a buildup of of dysfunctional, poor functioning tissue in that region. Exactly. Yep. And um, yeah, so problems with estrogen metabolism, and then 
insulin resistance, which you're well familiar with, just with the fasting is one of the great benefits of dealing with insulin resistance, but but those two factors, and and it's not just thyroid nodules, but just in the literature, it shows that it could also be related to other conditions, other growths, such as fibroids, uterine fibroids, ovarian cyst, endometriosis, and so thyroid nodules also fall within that category. So those are, are two of the big factors. Now, there's a lot of controversy with iodine. So iodine, uh, you know, my first book, the first version of the book, I was very pro-iodine, and I'm still not anti-iodine, just more cautious with iodine. Um, so I'm not, you know, I, I don't tell people you know, like to take large doses of iodine. I'm not telling people to like completely restrict iodine, but iodine deficiency in some cases can also lead to thyroid nodules. It gets a little bit tricky because sometimes it could also stimulate thyroid nodules, more so in like cases of what's called toxic multinodule goiter. Uh, but again, so iodine deficiency, just even inflammation could be a factor when it comes to the thyroid nodules. So I would say those are the biggest factors, the you know estrogen me metabolism problems, insulin resistance, sometimes an iodine deficiency, inflammation also could be a factor. Yeah, really good. Now with Hashimoto's, you know, we were talking about those labs. There are cases though, where Hashimoto's, you might actually have like a hyperthyroidism pattern for a short period of time, or at least more thyroid hormone than, than is expected is, um, can you explain that in more detail? Yeah. So there is a, well, there's a few different situations. So one there's Hashi toxicosis, uh, and then there's also postpartum thyroiditis. A lot of times women will have it's Hashimoto's, but they'll develop hyperthyroidism. And yeah, what happens is that in these situations, you get the thyroid gland, the immune system damaging the thyroid gland, and then thyroid hormone rushes into the bloodstream. And so essentially that person has a transient hyperthyroid state. And, you know, it could be a few hours, it could be a few days. I mean, sometimes longer than that. Um, but yeah, a lot of times, especially in the case of Hashi toxicosis, they may be misdiagnosed as Graves' disease when they, and, and, and people could have all three antibodies. I didn't mention that earlier. You could have the antibodies for both Hashimoto's and Graves. So that's possible too. But if someone is presenting with hyperthyroidism and let's say those thyroid stimulating immunoglobulins are negative, we said it might be negative TSI, negative antibodies, but it might be Hashi toxicosis. So you might want to look at those TPO antibodies, antithyroglobulin antibodies, and see if those are elevated. And then in the case of postpartum thyroiditis, it's similar. You know, you get it's it's really Hashimoto's, but you get damage to the thyroid gland and the thyroid hormone you know, goes through the bloodstream, presenting as hyperthyroidism. Yeah. So there's just a number of these different patterns. And uh, that's why you want a skilled clinician to really be able to sort through that and understand it better. I just wanted to interrupt this podcast to tell you about one of my favorite products. It's apple cider vinegar complex by Paleo Valley. We know that healthy blood sugar levels are extremely critical. If you want to have great mental clarity, a healthy mood, if you want all day energy, and if you want to be, if you want to be a good fat burner, you've got to keep your blood sugar stable and you've got to keep your insulin levels balanced. And this is why I love apple cider vinegar because research shows that when you take one to two tablespoons of apple cider vinegar with a meal, it lowers the glycemic impact of the meal, meaning the amount of blood sugar uh, elevation of the meal by up to 40% and it lowers the amount of insulin your body produces. This means you feel better. You have better energy after the meal. 
and you're able to burn fat more effectively. So super critical. The problem is that a lot of people do not like drinking apple cider vinegar, even if it's diluted in water, which is how I typically recommend it. And also if you have apple cider vinegar, in water, even if it's diluted and you don't clean your mouth out afterwards, it can actually erode the enamel of your teeth. So if you don't want to drink apple cider vinegar, this is why I recommend the apple cider vinegar complex. It contains a thousand milligrams of apple cider vinegar, which is equivalent to about 1.5 tablespoons of ACV, which is what you get, which is what gives you the clinical benefits. That's the dose that you want. So Paleo Valley has a thousand milligrams of the apple cider vinegar. They also combine it with 300 milligrams of turmeric, one of the most powerful anti-inflammatory herbs, 300 milligrams of ginger, another really powerful anti-inflammatory herb, and the combination of ACV, turmeric, ginger, there's also 50 milligrams of lemon and 150 milligrams of cinnamon in there. All these herbs actually help enhance digestive juice production, meaning the production of stomach acid, bile, pancreatic enzymes. So you're able to digest your meal more effectively. So you have less gas, bloating, less indigestion after a meal, and they help bring down inflammation in the body. So you just feel better. Your brain feels better, your joints, your skin, everything in your body feels better. So you're able to enjoy your meal and keep your blood sugar stable, keep your uh, inflammation under control when you take the ACV complex. All the ingredients in the Paleo Valley ACV complex are organic and uh, it's just really simple to take and you'll notice the benefits right away. I know I love taking this product. Guys, check it out. They've Paleo Valley has offered my community 15% off. Just go to paleovalley.com forward slash jockers to get 15% off any of the Paleo Valley products. And in particular, check out the ACV complex. Now, from your experience, what, what are some of the root cause factors? I know you mentioned a few there with the thyroid nodules. What would you list as kind of the root cause factors that you know, need to be looked at when somebody's developing an autoimmune condition like Hashimoto's or Graves' disease? Yeah, so there are are definitely different factors. It's what's called, I'm sure you're familiar with the triad of autoimmunity, also known as the mm-hmm. three-legged stool of autoimmunity, where you have genetics, exposure to one or more environmental triggers, and then an increase in intestinal permeability, which is a leaky gut. And so obviously we can't do anything from a genetic standpoint, uh, but thankfully by finding removing triggers and healing the gut, uh, those could be big factors in re- reversing the autoimmune component. And so, you know, starting with the gut, I mean, again, according to that triad, everybody with an autoimmune condition has a leaky gut, you know, some question that, but still very prominent. So if if not everybody, most people have a leaky gut with Graves, Hashimoto's, other autoimmune conditions. So just finding the factors that are disrupting the gut. Uh, is important. So whether it's foods such as gluten, um, which also could be a direct trigger um, and not just a leaky gut trigger, and then infections like H. pylori, parasites, which again, also could be a factor directly. Um, and we could talk about those after, but um, but yeah, just what's causing the leaky gut. And because a lot of people just jump into like gut healing, like drinking bone broth and taking L-glutamine, and those are great, um, but you want to find out what's disrupting the gut. So definitely healthy gut necessary for healthy immune system as most of the immune system cells are located in the gut. 
And then as far as the different triggers, so I, I mentioned a few of them, like food sometimes could be a factor such as gluten, dairy, even corn. And then we have, uh, I mentioned infections, like certain infections such as, I mentioned H. pylori, which is a correlation with both Hashimoto's and Graves in the literature, uh, Epstein-Barr, uh, which is a virus that could also be a factor, even stealth infections such as, well, viruses are stealth infections too, but but Lyme disease, Bartonella can also be potential triggers. Um, and then stress. I mean, stress is a big factor too, just in, a, I would say, at least from what I've seen, even more, I mean, with both Graves and Hashimoto's, all different autoimmune conditions, but even in the literature under Graves, it shows that stress is a big factor. And we could be talking about chronic everyday stress. We could be talking about like childhood trauma, um, you know, which is also quite common. Um, but either way, you want to do things to help with the stressors. I mean, some things you could do on your own, you could definitely block out time for stress management, incorporate mind-body medicine. You know, in some cases you might need some additional help, maybe speaking with a counselor or work with someone else, especially if there's, you know, past trauma in your life. Um, and then toxins, environmental toxins. Obviously we live in a toxic world. It's not getting any better. Uh, there are so many different environmental toxins out there. And uh, some of them can directly affect the thyroid and some of them can affect the immune system. Some of them can affect both. So like some heavy metals such as mercury can directly affect the thyroid and also affect the immune system and be a potential trigger of Graves or Hashimoto's. And then we have xenoestrogens such as bisphenol A that also could uh, act as endocrine disruptors and affect the thyroid, but also could affect the immune system. And, you know, glyphosate, which is, as you know, the ingredient in the herbicide Roundup, and that could cause dysbiosis of the gut microbiome, which, uh, you know, could also be at least a factor uh, in the development yeah. of Graves, Hashimoto. So again, so too many toxins to, to talk about, too many toxins to test. You can't even test for everything out there. Um, so yeah, but the, uh, and, you know, mold, toxic mold, I didn't mention. I mean, that also could be a potential trigger, also could affect the, the gut microbiome, those mycotoxins and yeah, again, so, so oh, and, and nutrient deficiencies, I should mention that as well. Not, I don't really consider them necessarily a trigger, more so of an underlying imbalance. So if someone has like deficiencies in vitamin D, selenium, zinc, you know, other nutrients are, I mean, all the nutrients obviously are important, mm -hmm. but those, when it comes to thyroid health, and the literature, vitamin D, a lot of research with vitamin mm -hmm. D and Graves and Hashimoto's and selenium definitely is one of the big ones as well. Yeah, vitamin D with really with autoimmune conditions all across the board, all all autoimmune conditions with vitamin D, we're seeing that quite commonly. People aren't getting out in the sun like um, like our ancestors used to. So yeah, that important factor. Now, how commonly are you seeing gluten? You had mentioned gluten. How commonly do you see gluten sensitivity or gluten intolerance uh, be a trigger for for individuals with autoimmunity? Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's hard to tell because I can't say that I test everybody for a gluten sensitivity. It's really where I just tell them to eliminate it just because yeah. when I have done such testing, it is common for it to show up. And I mean, I do test people for celiac disease because if someone has, uh, as long as they're eating gluten, I mean, if they're not eating gluten when they're seeing me, because um, so, some people have already given it up prior to seeing me and you need to be eating it to for, for the test to be valid. But if someone has 
Graves or Hashimoto's, they're more likely to have celiac disease. And if they have it, they probably want to know. So if someone if, is watching this and if they're, you know, if they, they're currently eating gluten and they have Graves Hashimoto's, you might want to do a celiac panel just to, you know, make sure, you know, either confirm or rule out. But as far as like a non-celiac gluten sensitivity, like I said, I don't, I can't say I test everybody for that, but the research does show that even if it's not a trigger, it can affect the the gut. I mean, some sources say like in everybody, like the it could potentially cause a leaky gut in everyone. So really just to play it safe, I tell, I, I advise that not everybody follows the recommendations, but I at least advise everybody to avoid gluten while healing. And then after they heal, I mean, you know, we, we really don't need gluten. So, it's, I mean, it would be ideal for us to all avoid it permanently, but let's focus on at least healing and not worry about it. And then once someone's in remission, you know, we could have that conversation as far as reintroducing it. Yeah, because gluten, everybody has a different threshold for how much they can handle, but gluten, when we're consuming it, that compound increases zonulin, which increases that permeability of the tight junctions in the gut. And you had mentioned intestinal permeability or kind of layman's term leaky gut as, you know, one of the, that, that triad, um, the three-legged stool, it's one of the key factors you know, we don't have autoimmunity without having intestinal permeability. And so if gluten is, is is increasing the permeability, even if you have a higher threshold where your immune system isn't reacting to it, you're still allowing more permeability, more potential pathogens getting into the blood and endotoxins getting in the blood, which can trigger inflammation. So it's a good idea. I, I recommend that also for anybody with autoimmunity is taking that out and going organic as much as possible, of course. Um, and and that transitions transitions us perfectly. What are the solutions? What what sort of lifestyle solutions to start with? And then we can get into uh, more of the nuance with Hashimoto's and with Graves as far as herbs and and nutrients and compounds that can be effective. Yeah. So with regards to diet, I mean diet and lifestyle factors for really everyone. Um, with with even if they have a non autoimmune thyroid condition, but you know if someone's dealing with Graves Hashimoto's. Usually I'll recommend either a paleo diet or an autoimmune paleo diet. Um, and autoimmune paleo diet is quite restrictive. So I'm, if I recommend it, it's it's definitely not long-term. So I'm usually not recommending it or always not recommending it like, you know, for a year or, but I will recommend it sometimes for like three months and some, you know, sometimes longer than that. And, uh, and then a, if someone finds that absolutely too restrictive, a paleo diet, a regular paleo diet is a good option. And, you know, that's yeah. Just, and what's the difference there? Like, a like, for example, I know paleo diet eggs are good, but on a paleo autoimmune diet, because a lot of people have sensitivities to eggs, particularly people with autoimmune conditions, even though eggs are one of the most nutrient dense foods, if your immune system is reacting to it, creating more inflammation, it's not good for you. Um, and so they would take that out. And then there's a whole bunch of other restrictions as well. Can you, do you, do you remember those? Yeah, sure. So so yeah, exactly. With um, so like the similarities. So you're you're able to eat meat and poultry and fish and vegetables and fruit. And so you're right. The eggs are allowed on regular paleo, but excluded on autoimmune paleo. And then nuts and seeds are allowed on paleo diet, but excluded from AIP, just because they can be harsh on the gut. And I I actually experienced this when I dealt with Graves. Back in 2008, there was no autoimmune paleo. So I was just following regular paleo. And I wasn't really much of an egg eater back then, but I was eating nuts. I was eating a good amount of nuts and I kind of hit a roadblock and I gave up the nuts and 
that kind of set me back on a healing path. So again, it, it can yeah, a lot definitely... of people have sensitivities to almonds, right? Different types mm -hmm. of tree nuts, things like that. It's common sensitivity, peanuts, real common. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So, and then the, the other big difference is the nightshades, the nightshade vegetables. So yeah. tomatoes, eggplant, peppers, and white potatoes are excluded from an autoimmune paleo diet just because, again, they could, in some people, be inflammatory and also potentially be harsh on the gut in some situations. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's good. That's a good summary there. What are What are some of the other lifestyle things people need to be doing? Yeah, so we spoke about stress being a potential factor, so blocking out time for stress management. And, you know, I encourage everybody to do this on a daily basis. And what I usually recommend is just start, if you're not doing anything currently, start off with five minutes per day. Everybody could find five minutes per day. And, you know, if you can't find five minutes per day, then you really need to incorporate stress management. So, um, so yeah, start out with five minutes a day, get in that routine of doing it every single day for a couple of weeks, and then you could gradually increase the duration to 10, 15 minutes, however long you're willing to do it, but definitely do it every single day. And one thing I didn't mention earlier, which is obviously important is sleep, getting sufficient sleep with any chronic health condition. And sometimes we need to, whether it's correct, things like insulin resistance, or if someone has elevated cortisol levels or other imbalances that we might have to do, uh, address those factors to help them with sleep. And, uh, you know, I mentioned toxins. So doing things to reduce your toxic burden, just you mentioned eating organic. So from a food perspective, that definitely is helpful. Uh, the cleaners, cosmetics that people use in their home, all, all the chemicals that a lot of people use, there are natural alternatives. And, you know, I realize some of them might not be ideal. Like, you know, I, I, I recommend like a, an, a, a deodorant without aluminum and a common complaint as well. You know, the, all the deodorants without aluminum, they just don't work as well as, and, and there are some actually good ones out there, but, you know, again, so, some people just, it, yeah, the truth is, again, some of the natural, pro most of the natural products I think are really good, but yeah, some of them don't compare to the chemicals, but again, you're trying to avoid anything that will have a negative effect on the thyroid, negative effect on the immune system, as well as other areas of the body. And if you have children in your home, you definitely, you know, even regardless of whether you have an autoimmune condition or not, you know, you really want to minimize the chemicals. I remember my mother like spraying air freshener when I was like growing up and, you know, yeah. again, so, so yeah, definitely in your home, there's a lot you could do. And, uh, you know, and then as far as like infections, I mean, the thing is with infection, sometimes it gets tricky because, you know, er almost everybody has Epstein-Barr. It doesn't mean Epstein-Barr is a factor or trigger in everybody with Graves and Hashimoto's. Sometimes it could get reactivated and cause problems. So it's not a bad idea to test for it. But many times, I, you know, just because it's present on a blood test doesn't mean I'll necessarily tr treat it. And even if it's reactivated, a lot of these infections, like especially stealth infections, I look at more as an immune problem than, you know, a, a, mm -hmm. a, a pathogen problem. So, yeah. you know, like you could take antivirals and for Lyme and other things you could, and I, I dealt with chronic Lyme and, you know, again, you could, you, there's a lot you could do, but sometimes you just need to improve the health of the immune system rather than take antimicrobials. Um, I mean, if you have H. pylori, parasites, and yeah, there's a time and place for, you know, whether it's antibiotics or I prefer like the herbal antimicrobials. 
And then like with toxic molds, the most important thing is removing the source of the toxic mold. And then, yeah, maybe you need to take some binders and do some other things to help with the detox. But removing the source really is is um, a big factor when it comes to both these infections and toxins. Although, again, with infections, you're not going to be able to permanently remove everything like Epstein-Barr. Once you have it, you have it. Lyme, arguably, once you have it, you have it. Some will debate that. But yeah, so those... Those really are are the main things, you know, detox. I, I should also say not only eliminate the source when it comes to toxins, decreasing your toxic burden, but increasing the elimination. So like, for example, I do sauna therapy three times a week, um, infrared sauna. And so that's something a lot of pe people could benefit from. Although if someone has active hyperthyroidism and they have a resting heart rate that's really high, they might want to be cautious because that will further increase the heart rate going into a hot sauna, but su certain supplements such as N-acetylcysteine or liposomal glutathione can support detox, um, supporting lymphatics with like dry brushing, uh, rebounding also could be beneficial. So there's a lot of ways to increase oil detoxification. over the liver, right? There so. you go. Yep, exactly. <laughs> Those castor oil packs could be really yep. helpful too. Yep, yep. Yeah, so boost detoxification, remove the source, um, support detoxification pathways. I think it's always really good. And a detoxification lifestyle in general, I think that's uh, that's good good advice that that people should be looking to do. And you know, the body is remarkably resilient. Now, the longer you've been sick, the lower your resilience level is. But the body's remarkable resilience. So a lot of times, removing the source um, or the sources, I should say, removing all these different types of sources, reducing your exposure to these things. And then supporting the body's ability to heal and supporting the immune system, like you were talking about, just giving it a nudge, right? And, the, and oftentimes the body can really bounce back quickly. And so, um, so that's a great first line. Now, what are some other key compounds, herbs? Let's go into a little bit more of the nuance. Let's start with Graves' disease. You know, you had mentioned a couple of herbs, motherwort, things like that. That can be really helpful for Graves' disease. So let's go into that in a little more detail. Sure. So yeah, when I dealt with with Graves, I had the choice to take the antithyroid medication and chose instead to take an herbal approach. So the herbs I personally took, I took bugleweed, which is an herb with antithyroid properties, helps to reduce thyroid hormone. And then motherwort is kind of like a natural beta blocker. So I, I, I didn't mention beta blockers earlier, but mm. some people with hyperthyroidism are recommended to take beta blockers to help lower the heart rate as well, or if they're dealing with um, high blood pressure. Um, so motherwort is more of a natural beta blocker. So focuses on the cardiovascular system. Also has some other benefits too, just like all herbs, but that's the main reason I would mm -hmm. give that to somewhat hyperthyroidism. Uh, lemon balm is, I didn't take lemon balm when I dealt with graves, but a, a lot of people could benefit from that. It has a calming effect. Yeah, anti-anxiety uh, so, type effect. Exactly. Yeah, yep. Helps um, sleep. Yeah, there you go. Yep. And, uh, and then L-carnitine. So L-carnitine, in higher doses has been shown in the literature to help with hyperthyroidism um, between two and 4,000 milligrams. And even, and I wouldn't take it if someone has a thyroid storm. So a thyroid storm is like an emergency situation, but, yeah. but some of the literature says that you could take it in mm. the case of a thyroid storm. So again, I wouldn't take L-carnitine, but I just bring it up just to show that yeah. how effective it could be. I wonder what the be. mechanism is there. Because when I think about L-carnitine, I think about it helps shuttle fatty acids into the mitochondria to be used for energy. That's kind of the main, 
I guess you could say, function of L-carnitine, but I'm sure that has got secondary functions. I wonder, do you know the mechanism there for how L-carnitine helps with hyperthyroidism? Yeah, according to the research, it shows, again, what higher doses, it blocks the entry of mm. thyroid hormone into the cell. Mm. So like it, so that's that's what it says. So I'm not sure if it's just like binding to the receptor and just like kind of oh. just, it, yeah, but, but it's By so it's higher not- higher doses, you were saying 2,000 to 4,000 milligrams, somewhere in that range. That's what, the, yeah, yeah, exactly. There's a few studies a that show like the higher dose. Multiple times a day or- Usually, usually, yeah, I, I will recommend, I mean, honestly, with most of these like bugleweed, motherwort, um, L-carnitine, I usually have the person taken in divided doses, uh, right. just have them split it up, uh, usually around breakfast time and then, yeah, before dinner. Yeah, yeah, good to know. So those yeah. are the three big ones uh, that you're using with clients for hyperthyroidism and seeing good results. Anything yeah. else there before we pivot to Hashimoto's? I mean, from a symptom management standpoint, you know, the herbs, the, I mean, there are a lot of great herbs. Um, you know, I will say, so I love ashwagandha. So ashwagandha, there's a little bit of controversy though with hyperthyroidism because ashwagandha, yeah. it's great for the adrenals, but it also affects the hypothalamic pituitary thyroid access, the HPT access. So in some cases, it could actually increase thyroid hormone. So, I mean, I there's times, I mean, honestly, I'll still like, I, I took something called a Luthero when I dealt with grapes, Siberian mm -hmm. ginseng, which, which also has, not it's not the same as ashwagandha, but could also, in some cases, trans, cause transient hyperthyroidism. But, um, and I did fine, and a lot of people do okay with, uh, with ashwagandha, but I just wanted to throw that out there where that is yeah. one of the more controversial herbs. So if someone has Hashimoto's, um, well, let me, let me backtrack to work well with Hashimoto's as well. Even yeah. though Ash ashwagandha is considered in the nightshade family. I, I was, I was just about to say that yeah. I, I was going to backtrack. I was going to say for Hashimoto's, I was going to say it's, it's, it might be okay, but you're absolutely right. It's a member of the nightshade family. So if someone's trying to follow a strict autoimmune paleo diet, AIP diet, then they might want to take a break or not take ashwagandha. Um, yeah. And again, I, I everybody has, you know, with these food sensitivities, everybody has a certain mm -hmm. threshold for how much of those particular foods yeah. or the active compounds in those foods that they can consume. So somebody might be on an AIP diet, but actually nightshades aren't their trigger. Yeah. Um, and oh, then they absolutely. may be great with ashwagandha or it's a certain amount of nightshades that really triggers the immune system. And then yeah. they're just taking a herbal extract. It's not going to hit that level of threshold. So everybody's different. Yeah. You know, but uh, in general, taking herbal extracts usually not going to trigger a threshold unless you're not going to trigger a symptom unless you have a very low threshold for those particular compounds. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. And one more thing I should say with hyperthyroidism, a lot of people, when they take the antithyroid meds, they have the elevated liver enzymes, but sometimes even without taking the meds, their liver and like just the hyperthyroidism could put some stress on the liver. So taking like an herb like milk, milk thistle can help. Yeah. Um, NAC also and acetylcysteine I like a lot. So those uh, giving liver support and then CoQ10, uh, um, especially if someone's on a beta block or someone just taking like propranolol, atenolol, which is common with hyperthyroidism, it depletes CoQ10. So in that case, you probably want to take some CoQ10 if you're on a beta blocker. Yeah. Or you could feel really fatigued. Is that exactly. CoQ10 you need for energy production? Yeah. Yes. All right. Let's go into Hashimoto's. We had started with ashwagandha which helps with that th that uh, adrenal pituitary thyroid axis. 
Yeah, so ashwagandha from I will say from a symptom management standpoint, really the only natural options are like there's no herb that could take the place of thyroid hormone. So mm -hmm. if someone is, you know, deficient in thyroid hormone because of the damage taking place to the thyroid, you know, there's only, I mean, ashwagandha is not going to really help with that. Um, now, if someone doesn't want to take levothyroxine, which is usually prescribed, then there are natural options. There's desiccated thyroid, such as armor, NP thyroid, then that has T, T3, T4, T1, T2, which is not as understood and you still can't test for it in a lab. Uh, and then there are glandulars that you could get um, over the counter or online. So the the Armor Nature th or Armor NP Thyroid require a prescription, just like levothyroxine, um, where it's like certain glandulars, like there's one Thyrogol that um, that has T4, T3, and doesn't require a prescription. Um, the downside it doesn't come in as many doses, like with. Typically, levothyroxine and desiccated thyroid, you have different dosing options, a lot of different dosing options, whereas with uh, with uh, thyroid gold, you only have a couple of options. Um, mm. Biotics Research has one, GTA Forte, that also, you know, in some cases could be a substitute for thyroid hormone. But, you know, always consult with the practitioner. I wouldn't just like stop taking thyroid hormone for those mm. who might be watching or listening to this and thinking about switching to glandular. You probably want to work with someone just before making that transition. Yeah, that's super key. And then you had mentioned some nutrients like zinc and selenium. That's real key for the T4 to T3 conversion, right? Which takes place in the liver. So you need healthy liver, gut function. Um, exactly. So there could be some compounds there, maybe probiotics to support the gut. Um, Omega-3s, yeah. Omega-3s, yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah those, the, yeah, pretty much for everyone, I'll recommend omega-3s and usually in the form mm. of fish oil, just because of the EPA and DHA. Yeah. And you're right, pro probiotics, I commonly recommend to support the gut, prebiotics, and you could get it, of course, you could get it through the food too, same with the probiotics. But, you know, I find most people don't eat enough of the probiotic foods, like the fermented foods. And yeah, selenium also has been shown to help with antibodies helping right, with the immune right. system lowering antibodies and then yeah you mentioned zinc and you know we spoke earlier about vitamin d which is very important for modulating mm -hmm. the immune system as well magnesium is also commonly deficient and yeah. has many different benefits so that's also something you know and and black human so black human i'll throw one also that's uh, at least in the literature more popular with Hashimoto's. Now I can't say I, I give black cumin to everybody, but black cumin uh, does have anti-inflammatory effects. Mm -hmm. um, also been shown to uh, help with eight, one of the things with H. pylori too, but um, black cumin, a number of different health benefits. So, so that's um, also yeah. something that some people might consider. Again, there's a lot of lot of supplements out there. Like again, liver support, I commonly recommend, which we discussed. I mean, and a lot of it depends on what we find. You know, like what just I'm sure what what you do. Just right. you know, just it depends. Like if someone does a gut test or you know an adrenal test or a dried urine test, a Dutch test, we'll see what the findings are. So there are general recommendations. I'll give like omegas and probiotics. But I can't say I give the same supplements to everybody because it really it depends on what findings we have with the testing we do. Yeah, absolutely makes sense. Last question: you you had mentioned H. pylori a few times. I know there's a big a big correlation with H. pylori and Hashimoto's. Um, is that the same with Graves as well? Oh yeah, yeah. And, and again, yeah. this is in the literature. So yeah, if you type in 
into PubMed, you type in Graves and, and H. pylori, you'll find a number of different articles, journal articles, you know, related to uh, H. with H. pylori related to to Graves. So yeah, with both Graves and Hashimoto's, it can be a potential factor. I mean, there's controversy, as you know, with H. pylori, some will say, yeah. you know, like you don't want to address it if someone, unless if someone's having heartburn and reflux, but because of that correlation, I've seen people where, you know, we address it. And again, I wouldn't address it with antibiotics unless, if, yeah. you know, I mean, if someone's yeah. having the heartburn reflux, then maybe in that case, and even then I would try to do the, like a natural and herbal approach. But, but again, I've seen over the years, so many people with Graves and Hashimoto's with H. pylori, and uh, and and not having the symptoms, and we put them on like a natural antimicrobial protocol. And again, at least that seems to be a piece of the puzzle. Maybe that's not the whole thing. We have to do other things too. But yeah, it's definitely a factor with both Graves and Hashimoto's. Yeah, and H. pylori is an issue because it shuts down your ability to produce stomach acid, which is going to limit your ability to absorb zinc, magnesium, vitamin B12, iron, a lot of these key compounds, and oftentimes we'll see deficient. In that, in those individuals, protein in general, just amino acids, puts a lot of stress on the body too. Uh, obviously, which can cause more dysbiosis later down in the gut. So, yeah, it's definitely something to consider with those kind of conditions. Really, all autoimmune conditions. That's uh, something that you want to be looking out for. So, really good stuff, Dr. Eric. Um, obviously, people can find out more at your website, Natural Endocrine Solutions. I know you got a great guide there, the six steps to reverse Graves' disease and Hashimoto's naturally. So, definitely check that out. And uh, you also have the great books, Natural Treatment Solutions for Hyperthyroidism and Graves, and then the Hashimoto's Triggers book and your podcast, Save My Thyroid. So if you're out there, definitely check out the podcast, check out the books and his website. Any last words for our audience here? Yeah, just uh, again, if you have thyroid or autoimmune thyroid condition, there's definitely hope. I mean, if you go to a conventional medical doctor, they're just going to do things to manage the symptoms. And that just comes down to their training. They, they want to help, but they just don't know how to. But you definitely could go beyond thyroid hormone replacement for those with Hashimoto's and beyond the anti-thyroid medication for those with Graves' disease. Yeah, great. Well, thanks so much for your time and your expertise there, Dr. Eric Osansky. Guys, check him out and we'll see you on a future interview. Be blessed, everybody. Well, that's all for this show. And I want to thank you again for spending your valuable time with me today. And if there was something you heard in this interview that you have questions on or you want to dive into deeper, then drjockers.com is the best place to go. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider taking just a quick moment and giving us a great review. Your reviews help us influence more people and transform more lives. And if you took something valuable away from this episode, then please share it with someone in your life you know it can help. We'll see you soon on a future podcast. Be blessed, everybody.